On the morning of July 2, 1937, a female pilot and her navigator took off from New Guinea on one of the last legs in their historic attempt to circumnavigate the globe. Their next destination was Howland Island in the central Pacific Ocean, around 2,500 miles away. The trailblazing female pilot had already set several aviation records, and she was looking to set another by becoming the first woman to fly around the world. But something went wrong on this attempt, and the pilot, her navigator, and the plane were never seen again. The pilot was a woman named Amelia Earhart, and this is the story of her life and disappearance. I'm Ashton, and welcome to The Haunted Corner. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Haunted Corner. I hope you all have noticed that I sound a little less like I'm underwater this week. I got a new microphone, and I appreciate you all riding this wave with me. (laughs) When I started this podcast almost seven months ago, I was just a broke single mom with a dream. I just kind of jumped in with the bare minimum equipment-wise, and now 54 episodes later... I took some advice from a friend about a microphone to get, and here we are. So hopefully the audio quality is better for your ears, because today we're talking about a wild story, one you've probably already heard, but I'm excited to cover it today and talk about the theories, all the things. This is the story of the life and disappearance of Amelia Earhart. She was amazing. The sources used in today's episode include several timeandhistory.com articles, a book called Amelia Earhart, A Life from Beginning to End, and the rest of the sources will be listed on the blog. Let's get into it. On July 24th, 1897, Amelia Mary Earhart was born in the small town of Atchison, Kansas, a very small town that today still has a population of under 12,000 people. It wasn't known for much before Amelia came along. Amelia was born to parents Edwin and Amy Earhart. Edwin was a local attorney, and Amy's father was one of the most successful men in Atchison. He was a former judge for the U.S. District Court, as well as the bank president for Atchison Savings Bank. And because of this prominence in the community, he reportedly wasn't super impressed with his daughter marrying Edwin, who came from more humble beginnings. When Amelia was two, her sister Grace Muriel was born, and the two quickly became inseparable. And the girls recalled that their mother was a little bit more unconventional for the time in the way that she raised the girls. She encouraged them to be strong and independent from a young age, and this independence allowed them to be themselves, and Amelia especially shirked the overtly feminine values which were commonly pressed on women during that time. She spent tons of time outside playing basketball, collecting tree toads, worms, lightning bugs, and more. She had a pretty structured routine being homeschooled. 
1907, Edwin Earhart was transferred from his position as a claims officer at a railroad company in Kansas to Iowa. Amelia and her sister would stay back with their grandparents while their parents relocated. The family was reunited in 1909 when the girls went to live with their parents in Iowa. While there, Amy tried to pick back up on homeschooling the girls, but eventually they were sent to public school. Amelia was in seventh grade at the time, and when she was exposed to public education, she thrived. She was known as a bright and involved student who loved to read. Later that year, Amelia would have her first experience with aviation when her father, Edwin, took her to the Iowa State Fair, where an airplane was being displayed to the public. This was just a few years after the Wright brothers flew the first powered airplane, so it was a big deal at the time. But not to Amelia at first. When her dad tried to get her to take a ride in the plane, she told him that she would rather go back to the merry-go-round. Later on, Amelia described how she wasn't super impressed with the plane, calling it, quote, a thing of rusty wire and wood and not at all interesting. Around this time, Edwin received a promotion and things improved financially for the family. They were able to relocate to a larger home, and Amy was able to hire a maid. But the family quickly began to run, out of, to run out of money, and Edwin was suffering from depression at the time and began drinking to ease his pain. During this time, Amelia was sent back to live with her grandparents, but things were not going well there either. Her grandmother was very ill and was progressively getting worse. In February of 1912, her grandmother passed away, and in her will, she left a large amount of money to Amy, but it came with a stipulation. It stated that the money must remain in a trust for 20 years or until the death of Samuel Edwin Earhart. This obviously wasn't a great feeling for Edwin, knowing about his in-laws' lack of confidence in him. He struggled to make ends meet, switching jobs frequently, and turning to alcohol once again. It got so bad that Amelia even began to intervene. On one occasion, she found her father's hidden whiskey stash in his sock drawer, and she dumped it down the drain. Her father caught her in the act of doing this and attempted to strike her, but was reportedly stopped by her mother, Amy. So the family was going through tough times, and Amelia was entering her teens, in 1915, Edwin was supposedly given a position by the Burlington Railroad in Springfield, Missouri, so the family once again packed up and headed to their new home, which ended up being a rundown boarding house while Edwin lined up his job prospects. He didn't, he didn't ever land the job that he had planned on before the move and took a temporary position that couldn't support the family. This was the turning point for the couple specifically, Amy and Edwin, and they ended up separating. Edwin returned to Kansas while Amy and the girls went to Chicago to stay with a friend while Amy got back on her feet. Amelia attended Hyde Park High School while there, and it was noted that the normally lively and outspoken Amelia struggled to make friends and was really sad during this time. In the school's yearbook was a picture of Amelia with the caption that said, A.E. Amelia Earhart, the girl in brown who walks alone. And that broke my heart. By the time graduation came around, Amelia didn't even attend the ceremony with the other students because her high school experience was that bad. 
But things were about to turn around for her, as they always do. Things always get better. Amelia's mother found out that her brother had squandered a huge portion of their inheritance after he was left in charge of their mother's estate. So she took matters into her own hands and contested it in court. The judge ruled that Amy's mother had been incompetent when she signed the terms of the trust, and so therefore the terms were nullified and Amy was to be paid the amount that she was owed immediately. So this sudden large amount of money changed a lot of things for the family. Amy paid for Amelia to attend college at the Argonauts School for Young Ladies in Title, Pennsylvania. Amelia was required to live on campus, and she arrived by train on October 3rd, 1916. The headmistress, a woman named Abby Sutherland, ran a tight ship, but Amelia did well at the school. She fit right in. She had found her place. During Christmas vacation in 1917, Amelia visited her sister in Toronto, Canada, World War I was ongoing, and Amelia witnessed a lot of wounded soldiers who had just gotten gotten back from the war. This really tugged at her heartstrings and made her realize that she had to do something to help, something other than just sitting back and knitting sweaters. A week later, she decided to leave school to work as a nursing assistant. And nurses were in high demand at the time because of the war, so Amelia jumped right in. In April of 1918, she took a job at Toronto's Spadina Military Hospital, and she reportedly took this work very seriously. She worked a lot, and she also spent lots of time with her sister, Muriel. She enjoyed playing tennis, horseback riding, and going to hockey games. She was out riding a horse one day when she met three pilots from the Royal Canadian Air Force. And after she and Muriel became friends with them, they invited the women to the military airfield to watch the planes fly. And this is where Amelia's fascination with planes truly began. Not long after this, she went to an air show at the Canadian National Exposition Grounds. The planes and pilots were much more impressive than anything she had ever seen before. She was amazed by the flying skills of the pilots, and it left a huge mark on on her. She returned to her job at the hospital until the swell of soldier patients began to subside at the end of World War I in 1918. The following year, Amelia returned to the U.S. and began classes at Columbia University in a pre-med program. I told y'all, she was awesome. She seemed to enjoy her time at the school. However, she only competed, completed one year at the school before she left New York for the West Coast. And around this time, her parents reconciled and moved into a house together in Los Angeles. Her father was sober and working as a lawyer at the time. In 1920, Amelia decided to join her parents in Los Angeles. And when she did, she attended an air show show at the airfield in Long Beach with her father. And at this time, she expressed interest in riding in a plane herself. So a few days later, her father bought her a ticket and away she went. She claims that she knew at that moment that she had to fly a plane herself. The next month, Earhart recruited Nita Snook to be her flying instructor. The initial contract was for 12 hours of instruction for $500. Amelia worked a variety of jobs, including photographer, truck driver, and stenographer at the local telephone company and managed to save $1,000 for flying lessons. She had her first flying lesson on January 3rd of 1921, and she was a really quick learner and eventually saved up enough money to purchase her own plane. 
She proudly named the yellow secondhand Kinner Airster the Canary. Once she had her own plane, she spent almost every weekend at air shows and quickly started setting goals for herself and breaking records along the way. She eventually would have to sell her plane to purchase a car after her family ran into some financial troubles. But that didn't stop her from setting even more records. Her first record came in 1922 when she became the first woman to fly solo above 14,000 feet. She officially received her pilot's license on May 15, 1923, and she was only the 16th woman in the U.S. to be issued a pilot's license. She became the first woman to fly alone across North America and back in 1928. In 1929, after placing third in the All-Women's Air Derby, which was the first transcontinental air race for women, Amelia Earhart helped to form the 99s, which was an international organization for the advancement of female pilots. She became the first president of the Organization of Licensed Pilots, which still exists today and represents women flyers from 44 countries. Badass. In 1931, Amelia married her publicist, a man named George Putnam. Some people have argued that this marriage was more of a strategic move than one out of love. He would be able to promote her and her brand. But who really knows? It could have been both. Amelia continued to set records. She would go on to set a world altitude record in 1931 when she soared to 18,415 feet and became the first woman to fly alone across the Atlantic in 1932. Then, after landing in a field in Ireland on May 21st of 1932, a farmer asked her if she'd flown far. Amelia famously replied, from America, and she had a copy of a day-old newspaper to prove her incredible accomplishment. When she returned to the U.S., Congress awarded her the Distinguished Flying Cross, a military decoration awarded for heroism or extraordinary achievement while participating in an aerial flight. She was the first woman to receive the honor. As her fame grew, she developed friendships with many people in high offices, most notably First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. She shared many of Earhart's interests and passions, especially women's causes. And we'll get back to Lady Eleanor a little bit later. Later that year, Earhart made the first solo nonstop flight across the U.S. by a woman. She started in Los Angeles and landed 19 hours later in Newark, New Jersey. She also became the first person to fly solo from Hawaii to the United States in 1935. Between 1930 and 1935, Amelia had set seven women's speed and distance aviation records in a variety of aircraft, including the Kinner Airster, Lockheed Vega, and Pitcairn Autogiro. And now this is where we get to the big event. Early in 1936, Earhart started planning around the world flight. Although others had flown around the world, her flight would be the longest at 29,000 miles because it followed a roughly equatorial route. With financing from Purdue in July of 1936, a Lockheed Electra was built at Lockheed Aircraft Company to her specifications, which included extensive modifications to the fuselage to incorporate many additional fuel tanks. The original plan was a two-person crew. Amelia Earhart would fly and Fred Noonan would navigate. 
Harry Manning would also accompany Amelia as a second navigator and Paul Mance as a co-pilot. On March 17th of 1937, Earhart and her crew flew the first leg from Oakland, California to Honolulu, Hawaii. The plane needed servicing upon arrival and it ended up at the U.S. Navy's Luke Field on Ford Island in Pearl Harbor. The flight resumed three days later from Luke Field with Earhart, Noonan, and Manning on board. The next destination was Howland Island, a small island in the Pacific. Harry Manning, the only skilled radio operator, had made arrangements to use radio direction finding to home into the island. The flight never left Luke Field, though. During the takeoff run, there was an uncontrolled ground loop. The forward landing gear collapsed. Both propellers hit the ground and the plane skidded on its belly and a portion of the runway was damaged. So now, with the plane being damaged, the flight was called off and the plane was shipped by sea to Lockheed Burbank for repairs. While the plane was being repaired, Amelia and George Putnam secured additional funds and prepared for a second attempt, this time flying west to east. The second attempt began with an unpublicized flight from Oakland to Miami, Florida, and after arriving there, Amelia publicly announced her plans to circumnavigate the, the globe. The flight's opposite direction was partly the result of changes in global wind and weather patterns along the planned route since the earlier attempt. On the second flight, Harry Manning dropped out, so Fred Noonan was Amelia's only crew member. The pair departed Miami on June 1st, and after numerous stops in South America, Africa, the Indian subcontinent, and Southeast Asia, they arrived at Leh, New Guinea on June 29, 1937. At this stage, about 22,000 miles of the journey had been completed, and the remaining 7,000 miles would be over the Pacific Ocean. So her flight around the world took several attempts. On July 2nd, 1937, Amelia and Fred left New Guinea for the isolated Howland Island in the Pacific. It was supposed to be one of their last stops before they reached the mainland United States. At around 7.42 a.m. local time, Earhart radioed the Coast Guard cutter Itasca. According to NBC News, the ship was waiting at Howland Island to offer support to Earhart and Noonan during the last part of their journey. Quote, we must be on you, but cannot see you, but gas is running low, end quote. Earhart said, have been unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at 1,000 feet, she continued. The cutter, which according to PBS was unable to send a message back to her, heard from Amelia just one more time about an hour later. Quote, we are on line 157337. We will repeat this message. We will repeat this on 6210 kilocycles. Wait. Earhart messaged at 843 a.m. describing possible compass headings to indicate her location. According to TIGAR, which is the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, the numbers 157 and 337 referred to compass headings. So 157 degrees and 337 degrees. And these describe a navigation line that passed not only Howland Island, the target destination, but also Gardner Island, which is now called Nikumaroro. After this last message, the Itasca lost contact with the plane and Amelia Earhart forever. 
Now, following the disappearance of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan in July of 1937, President Franklin Roosevelt ordered a massive search that covered 250,000 square miles of the Pacific. Earhart's husband, George Putnam, also financed his own search, but neither found a sign of the pilot or her navigator. And on July 19, 1937, the operation was called off and the pair was declared lost at sea. According to history, the U.S. Navy's official conclusion was that 39-year-old Earhart had run out of fuel while searching for Howland Island, crashed her plane somewhere in the Pacific, and drowned. George Putnam clung to his belief that his wife had come down not in the sea but on land because the radio batteries located under the ship's wings would have been put out of commission in the water. Dozens of amateurs continued to report messages from the the lost plane's radio, but Navy and Coast Guard radio experts doubted that any of these were genuine. And after 18 months of searching, the legal declaration of Amelia Earhart's death finally came in January of 1939. But what really happened that day? Here is where we get into the theories, and there's a lot of them, so buckle up. Many people follow the belief that yes, the Electra ran out of fuel, crashed, and the wreckage and remains of Amelia and Fred are somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. But many people think that it's possible that they survived. Several expeditions over the last 15 years have attempted to locate the plane's wreckage on the seafloor near Howland. High-tech sonar and deep-sea robots have failed to yield clues about the Electra's crash site, though. Theory number one, the Gardner Island hypothesis. And this theory actually tracks with what Tigar stated about the coordinates that Amelia gave him in her last radio call. And I tend to lean into this theory with what I think happened. This came from history.com. Quote, the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, or Tigar, postulates that Earhart and Noonan veered off course from Howland Island and landed instead some 350 miles to the southwest on Gardner Island, now called Nikumaroro, in the Republic of Kiribati. The island was uninhabited at the time. A week after Earhart's disappearance, Navy planes flew over the island. They noted recent signs of inhabitation, but found no evidence of an airplane. Tigar believes that Earhart and perhaps Noonan may have survived for days or even weeks on the island as castaways before dying there. Since 1988, several Tigar expeditions to the island have turned up artifacts and anecdotal evidence in support of this hypothesis. Some of the, some of the artifacts include a piece of plexiglass that may have come from the Electra's windshield, a woman's shoe dating back to the 1930s, improvised tools, a woman's cosmetics jar from the 1930s and bones that appeared to be part of a human finger. In June of 2017, a Tiger-led expedition arrived on Nikamaroro with four forensically trained bone-sniffing border collies to search the island for any skeletal remains of Earhart or Noonan, but the search turned up no bones or DNA. In August of 2019, Robert Ballard, the ocean explorer known for locating the wreck of the Titanic, led a team to search for Earhart's plane in the waters around Nikamaroro, but they saw no signs of the Electra. Another theory claims that when they failed to reach Howland Island, Earhart and Noonan were forced to land in the Japanese-held Marshall Islands. 
According to this theory, the Japanese captured Earhart and Noonan and took them to the island of Saipan, some 1,400 miles south of Tokyo, where they tortured them as presumed spies for the U.S. government. Apparently, they later died in custody, possibly by execution, allegedly. Since the 1960s, the Japanese capture theory has been fueled by accounts from Marshall Islanders living at the time of a, quote, American lady pilot held in custody on Saipan in 1937, which they passed on to their friends and descendants. Some of the theories advocates suggest that Earhart and Noonan were in fact U.S. spies and their around the world mission was a cover up for efforts to fly over and observe Japanese fortifications in the Pacific. Susan Butler, author of East to the Dawn, The Life of Amelia Earhart, says, quote, my feeling is that the plane simply ran out of gas, end quote. While billionaire philanthropist Ted White financed a 2009 In 2009, a robotic search of the ocean floor west of Howland Island, the ocean floor on the east side of the island has yet to be explored. And when that happens, Butler says she believes that the remains of the plane will be found. The crash and sink theory has been most widely supported theory about the disappearance, but what do you guys think really happened? A fun side note before I leave you. Remember how I mentioned that Eleanor Roosevelt and Amelia Earhart were friends? Well, apparently they were uh, really close. There have even been rumors that they were more than friends, if you catch my drift. But at the very least, they were really good friends. And this next story is my favorite. This came from an MSN article. Quote, have you ever found yourself in an incorrigibly boring situation? Well, when you're the first lady of the United States and a revered pilot that the entire world would literally look up to, your means of escaping one can be pretty luxurious. There's a famous story about how Amelia Earhart and Eleanor Eleanor Roosevelt at Amelia's invitation, ditched a dinner party at the White House in 1933 and stepped out to get some air. Some air high above the surface of the earth, that is. According to Pioneers of Flight, the two women led a small group of attendees out to a nearby airfield and boarded a plane. Instead of sticking around for coffee and dessert, the troop of elite adventurers hopped into the Eastern Air Transport Curtis Condor for a quick round-trip voyage to Baltimore and back. Earhart did most of the flying, but Roosevelt was by her side. Eleanor had her student's pilot's license at the time. Upon returning, they were shuttled back to the party in time to schmooze with their fellow white tie comrades for a bit. Quote, it does mark an epic, doesn't it? When a girl in an evening dress and slippers can pilot a plane at night. End quote. Eleanor Roosevelt remarked after the fact. In her 1932 memoir titled The Fun of It, Amelia said, quote, flying may not be all plain sailing, but the fun of it is worth the price. And that is the story of the life and disappearance of Amelia Earhart. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the episode and I can't wait to hear your take on it and what you think what happened to Amelia Earhart. The sources for today's episode will be listed on the blog post for the episode at www.thehauntedcorner.com. I will also link to the blog post in the show notes. 
check out the other episodes of The Haunted Corner available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, with new episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to share your support, head on over to Patreon. You'll have access to the exclusive Patreon-only episodes, early and ad-free access to episodes, plus a lot more, and you're helping keep the show going. So head over to patreon.com forward slash The Haunted Corner to join now. Follow us on social media at The Haunted Corner on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to tell a friend. If you have a case suggestion or correction to share, please send it to thehauntedcorner at gmail.com or submit it through the website. Until next time, be kind and take care of yourselves, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.